Once you have a third-party certification, that almost instantly means that there's loopholes. Welcome to the BRAD Podcast, where we explore ways to pursue peak performance with passion throughout life without taking ourselves too seriously. I'm Brad Kearns, New York Times bestselling author, former number three world-ranked professional triathlete, and Guinness World Record Masters athlete. I connect with experts in diet, fitness, and personal growth and deliver short breather shows where you get simple, actionable tips to improve your life right away. Let's explore beyond the hype, hacks, shortcuts, and sciency talk to laugh, have fun, and appreciate the journey. It's time to be rad. Greetings, my fitness-minded listeners. I want to acquaint you with the Primal Fitness Expert Certification Program, the most comprehensive home study multimedia fitness education course in the world. If you want to enhance your personal knowledge of all aspects of leading a healthy, active, fit lifestyle, this total immersion course will be life-changing. I'm the lead instructor and author of the course, and we have 14 chapters of extensive written content with over 100 accompanying videos covering topics such as general everyday movement, including micro-workouts and dynamic workstation tips, the full experience of gym-based strength training and all the different modalities, a complete presentation on all aspects of sprinting, both running and low-impact options, an assortment of high-intensity interval training and high-intensity repeat training strategies, a detailed education on the principles and practical application of aerobic endurance training, and extensive commentary, the most you will find in any publication, on all aspects and symptoms of overtraining and burnout. We even have fascinating peripheral topics like integrating nasal diaphragmatic breathing, dynamic stretching, injury prevention, and developing a peak performance mindset. It's really something, this course. We went all out for over two years with a great team to develop this amazing home-based fitness education for you. And you get one-on-one expert email support and private Facebook group connection throughout your studies to ensure that you absorb everything optimally and you pass your series of exams and get certified. So go to primalhealthcoach.com slash Brad to enjoy a very special limited time. And I'm not kidding. This is a big time discount just for you. 25% off your tuition. A fantastic premium offer at primalhealthcoach.com slash brad for the most comprehensive fitness course you can ever find. Hello listeners, it's time to take a trip with me out to the ranch. That's right, we are going to talk to a real live rancher named Tyler Dolly at Big Bluff Ranch in the area of Red Bluff, California. It's a couple hours north of Sacramento on Interstate 5. So if you're driving on a road trip, you can stop in and check out this amazing place where they are raising truly organic, free-range chickens that taste delicious. I tried some myself. He shipped me some. And the first bite, you can tell right away that you are enjoying a superior animal, much better nutritional value as well as humanitarian and environmental concerns. So Tyler's going to give us a Uh, a fast-moving, basic education on numerous aspects of regenerative farming. And I think it's an area that a lot of us are kind of uh, minimally aware of what goes on behind the scenes when we go to the store 
And if you're a health conscious consumer, you're looking for the best meat, you're looking at different labels, potentially confusing. He describes this term called greenwashing, which is uh, when you change your label or make some claims without changing your farming practices. So we're going to touch on the industrial farming complex and the feedlot animals, the compare and contrast with a operation that uh, does the mother nature style, as he calls it, and actually has the effect of sequestering carbon. So having a net positive for the environment, because we hear so much about how factory farming and the feedlot cattle are emitting a lot of methane into the environment and causing the greenhouse gas emissions. So boy, he has such a positive and hopeful uh, vision for the future. And it starts with uh, the consumer just changing spending patterns to demand and scrutinize and go and find the best sources of meat. And Big Bluff Ranch is going to be uh, a fun place to stop over on and order up some chicken. They'll ship it to you uh, right to your door. It's great. You know, I talk about ButcherBox so much, which has that tremendous commitment to uh, grass-fed beef, free-range chicken and poultry uh, and, and turkey and everything of the highest standard, wild-caught fish. So we have to do a great job, uh, you know, changing the world one purchasing decision at a time. And I like how Tyler says, hey, you don't have to be perfect here or feel overwhelmed, but just try to do better and try to get over to the farmer's market and form relationships with locally grown food. It starts there and get ready, people. We're going on a farm education tour with Tyler at Big Bluff Ranch. Tyler Dolly, I got you on a on a spare moment at the busy Big Bluff Ranch in Red Bluff, California, and you're going to talk to us about all kinds of organic regenerative farming. You sent me some wonderful chicken. It was distinctly superior to any chicken that you're going to find through mainstream channels. And uh, boy, you could tell on the first bite. So I'm excited to learn more about all the great things you're doing at Big Bluff Ranch and your history in the in the scene. And particularly with the consumer, um, a lot of the misinformation and the marketing hype that we're subjected to. So I look forward to sorting some of that stuff out too. Yeah, I'm I'm excited to be on here. I appreciate it very much. Yeah, tell me about Big Bluff Ranch. So, um, the short story, and uh, I'll try and keep it short, but it, it does tend to run a little long because uh, we've been around here for a while. My uh, my mom's dad, Grandpa, bought the uh, bought the ranch in 1960, and. It, for him, it was at the time kind of a, a weekend toy. He was doing pretty well after the end of World War II. And this was just uh, the reason we're called Big Bluff Ranch is he bought the ranch, told Graham. Graham's like, no, you didn't. It's a big bluff. No, you didn't buy a ranch. Nuts. So so they brought it up here. And he's like, here, here you go. It's a big bluff. So that's why, that's why we're Big Bluff Ranch. It's not the mountainside that we have back here. We do have bluffs, but. It's because Graham said, no way, you, you didn't buy a ranch. Um, so Grandpa did pretty well for a while, but then, you know, as as things go, the money went away, but the ranch stayed. So starting in the 80s, um, my dad had to figure out how to make the ranch pay for itself. And, you know, we're, we're kind of in an environment where it's not just a slam dunk situation. If we were 20 miles closer to the Sacramento River, We'd be growing walnuts, and I would be in the French Riviera having fun. 
if we were, you know, farther down closer to the Delta, you know, we'd be growing other stuff. But where we're at is a relatively um, poor soil type. So we're really only good for rangeland. We're only good for growing, you know, animals. And my dad needed to figure out how to do that. And so there's a guy named Alan Savory, who at the time, back in the early 80s, was promulgating something called the Holistic Resource Management. And um, nowadays, he's semi-famous, and he's got a, one of the most viewed TED Talks um, in TED Talk, TEDx history. And it's called Holistic Management now. But back in the day, when my dad first met him, he wasn't world famous. He was like trying to get 10 people to come to a seminar in Willows, which is a town even smaller than Red Bluff. So we got into that, but he convinced my dad. So we started raising our cows uh, in a very simplistic explanation, mimicking how you would raise animals or Mother Nature raises animals on the Serengeti. Big clumps of, of grazing animals that are here for a day and then gone because the, the, the lions are after them. So what we do, we don't have lions out here. We have electric fences. So we built a lot of electric fences. We would manage our cows to be in one spot and then we'd move them on to the next spot and so each spot had a lot of time to recover there's way more cool stuff there but that's simplistically what we we started doing and then as you start logically following this process through you're like okay we're taking care of our cows here we're taking care of the ground um but we want to kind of keep going with this that our cows are still requiring some inputs we're still having to get some hay in the winter we're still having to get some you know protein supplements then that you know back before we moved you know white guys moved into this valley like the ridge behind me is called Elkhorn Ridge we have Antelope Boulevard down in Red Bluff that there was a ton of um animals that lived here and didn't need outside supplementation. So they're like, well, cows should be able to do this, right? So I, I, the we started changing our cattle genetics to short, wide cows for instead of tall, skinny cows. Tall, skinny cows are good for feedlots, but they're not really good for ranchers because you have to feed tall, skinny cows and we're not feedlots. So we went to short, wide cows. Short, wide cows actually turn out to be really good for grass-fed beef. That's when I graduated college. So graduated on a Friday, was at a farmer's market on a Sunday. Maybe it was two Sundays later, but we'll call it the next Sunday. It's a better story. And um, so that was the early 2000s. That led us to farmer's markets. That led us to trying out uh, grass-fed lamb, browse, finished goat. And we tried a little bit of chicken and we're like, nah, that was a miserable experience. <laughs> the new rule, four legs only. So we're like, oh, well, the only four-legged animal left is pigs. Let's try pasture pork. And well, we found out that there are things worse than chickens for us. And uh, we did did not enjoy the pork experience. And uh, that led us back into chickens. And chickens, that was kind of it. We, we hit our little lane there. When we got back into chickens, we got, you know, pretty good at it. We were doing direct sales through farmer's markets. I ran into a guy who could sell more chicken than he could raise. And I could raise more chicken than I could sell. And that was that was 2009 and we've been contract growing chickens for the last 10 12 years and uh we're we're trying to branch back out into direct marketing and telling people about the fun stuff we do and that is my long-winded but short answer to who we are at the ranch so 
there's just a lot to cover. I try and keep it short, but I got to go. Yeah, lots of questions come up. So uh, over a decade ago, this stuff wasn't as popular as it is now, where people are scrutinizing labels and asking for pasture-raised chicken and so forth. So when you're at these farmer's markets and I suppose charging a higher price than the crap you find in the grocery store and what we're accustomed to paying for chicken. Um, how did that uh, How did that go where you were build, building momentum with a discriminating consumer even back then? Yep. Yeah. So, I mean, well, you experienced it that when you, when you raise chickens the way we do chickens, it just tastes better. You know, if you try it once, you're pretty much convinced I don't really need to do much more explanation. So that, that was it. So when we're at the farmer's markets, we could show people, you know, pictures of what we're doing. They were talking to me directly and they'd take the chicken home and I'd tell them how to cook it. What was the best way? And then they'd come back the next week and we're like, well, that was the most amazing chicken. I need, I need this week's chicken. And that's just kind of how we kept growing. It's just by delivering really awesome, delicious chicken one at a time. And you talked about running the cattle through different sections of the farm with the electric fence and then allowing the land to, uh, what you said, recover. Um, it sounds maybe more tedious and more expensive than the typical feedlot operation. So maybe you could compare and contrast what most ranches are doing um, and how that might negatively impact the land versus the, uh, it sounds like you guys were pretty pretty early adopters of this cutting edge strategy to, to try to regenerate the land. Yeah. I mean, it, we were, we were generative before people knew what that meant. I mean, we were organic before people knew what that meant. I mean, we were just trying to take care of our land the best way possible. So what typically happens is, um, a rancher will be called a cow calf producer. So that's a that's a that's a cowboy who raises mama cows who'll have calves and they'll wean those calves at three, four, five months, you know, off of their wean. So they're not nursing on mom anymore, but they're not big. And so in a typical situation, that goes off to that weaned calf goes off to a a stalker operation, which would be a guy who raises cows from like four or 500 pounds up to like maybe 900 pounds. And then it goes to a feedlot or that weaned calf just goes straight to a feedlot. And a feedlot is where 90, 98, 95, some really high percentage of all beef in the U.S. comes from. And in a feedlot, they're going to be in, a, in an enclosure, a corral, and they'll be fed an appropriate feed. And, you know, oftentimes there's a lot of corn in that. And um, corn grows cows pretty darn quick they get up to harvest weight um it, really efficiently if you're looking at it from that um, perspective they they put on weight really quick and they grow and they do a a, a, a good job at that so at growing and then they go to the harvest and then then they get processed and then they show up in your grocery store um and that's how beef can be relatively cheap at your grocery stores because you're they're eating mostly corn and our current farm bill subsidizes corn production. <laughs> so that corn that they're eating is artificially cheap. And it's been that way since the end of World War II. So that's part of the reason why grocery store beef is so cheap is because you and me and our tax dollars have uh, paid the farmer to grow corn below the cost of production. 
So remember some of that from economics class in college where you're drawing the graphs and then um, uh, below the cost of production, but they're still getting paid. It was pretty pretty trippy to, to realize what's going on behind the scenes. Um, but the, 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 the cattle, uh, every cow is out there on the open range for a percentage of their life, and then they go into the feedlot. That's what you're describing. And then uh, they, they put on uh, a large amount of weight in a short time from, from sitting around and, and chowing on corn all day. Yep. Yep. I mean, that's it, it, in round numbers. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there, there's more nuance to it. And, and I don't want to be poking at any of the people in that situation because they're all trying to take care of the animals that they best, they know how to be sustainable as best they know how. So, you know, I, I hear some people kind of tossing some mud at various producers and I just no producer out there is out there purposely, maliciously not taking care of their animals. They're just absolutely doing the best that they can. And there's a better way, but they're, they're doing the best they can. So, um, yeah. And so, uh, compared to a grass fed operation, you know, our cows, which would just stay on, on the, on the grass forever, you know, cows are ruminants. They, they, you know, Ruminants meaning that they eat grass and then they actually will spit up their cud. And if you ever, you see the pictures of the cows like going chomp, 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 just laying down there chewing their jaws. So what they actually do is they'll eat grass, goes down into their first stomach. They have four stomachs, goes into their first stomach, kind of like a holding cell, holding pen, holding tank. And they're like, okay, I got this full enough. And then they're like, I'm bored. I'm going to go sit down. And they, they hurf up some of the grass and they're like, okay, now it's time to work on this. And they chomp, 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 chomp it. And then they send it down to their their next stomach, and that's where they actually start getting nutrition out of it. So, anyways, cows are designed to eat grass. They have these extra stomachs to handle all the roughage. And um, so, if you you provide the cows the the feed that they're used to, that's um, that just works out. And that the cool thing about that is that cows are meant to eat grass. Grass is meant to be eaten by cows. And that if you kind of take some cues from how Mother Nature does things, where if you think about that, those plains of Africa, where those wildebeest or whatever are here for a day and then they're gone, you can kind of in your mind's eye imagine that that area was just hammered to the ground. It's, there's no grass left. You know, there's tons of dung. There's ton of urine. It's all chump chewed up with the hooves plowed. And those animals are gone, and that that ground has time to recover because they don't want to come back to that, you know. Yuck. So, so if you take that idea and you try and apply it into a into a domesticated livestock idea, you get the same thing. You concentrate your animals; they're going to fertilize the ground, they're going to plant seeds with their hooves, and you keep those animals off. And this is where the eye of the farmer or the rancher comes in that we can actively manage mother nature's system rather than just letting her passively do it. So we can go out there and we can, we can eyeball how fast these plants are recovering. You know, a rule of thumb is that you don't want to go back and eat that same piece of that same plant until it looks like it hasn't been grazed. So that just that simple little bit of explanation means that you can go out there and if you're in like the springtime, at least out here, like that grouse is growing like crazy. You only need about 30, 30 days of recovery, and that plant looks like it was never touched. And they're like, okay, hey, it's all recovered. Let's put the cows back in here. This is great. Now you come back here, say like August, you know, in California, we're talking it's brown, it's dry, we're a Mediterranean climate, nothing's really growing. 
you're going to graze that down. You're going to watch that plant. Now you're looking at like 180 day recovery, 210 days of recovery. You're basically waiting until that plant recovers. Now that cues all sorts of amazing things that by letting these plants recover, they're putting roots into the ground, they're sequestering carbon, they're opening up the pores of the soil. So when it does rain, the rain goes in, it doesn't go out. Um, California's had a lot of wild wildfires recently. So if you take, instead of, instead of talking about cows, let's talk about goats, let's talk about sheep, these small ruminants like to browse, same principles apply that they could be browsing down all this brush that's been burning in California. So you can change the landscape away from browse, which is an indication of over rest, and you can turn it back into a grassland. So just the, 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 the really fun thing about managing landscapes like this is that you can, <laughs> you can fix everything. You can fix mm-hmm. all the world's problems. Like, Hey, we have flooding. Well, that kind of tells you that you're your rangelands aren't infiltrating water fast enough. We hey, we have crazy wildfires in California. Well, that probably means there's some management issues that you're having too much, you're allowing too much brush to grow. Um, yeah, just, you know, hey, my, 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 my body's not very healthy. Like, well, the, how's healthy is the food it is that you're eating? Mm. Well, maybe that's not healthy. Well, maybe there's an issue there. Well, how do I get healthy food? Well, let's get it from healthy ground. Okay, well, how do we have healthy ground? Like, well, it should probably be taken care of like Mother Nature would take care of it, right? So there's these, you know, broad parameters. There's all these things that kind of link together that kind of give you a sense of what agriculture could and should look like. So I'll, so, I'll get off yeah. my stops. Yeah, I'll get off my soapbox a little bit there. Well, I mean, the, the soapbox is important because this is so uh, uh, little little known insights from the average consumer who's going to the store and, and buying the meat or whatever food they choose if they're against animal products because uh, they're destroying the environment and um, all this carbon is going into the atmosphere from your typical feedlot. It's like a big smokestack in the coal factory. And so we have this important distinction between, I guess uh, you could say, misusing the land and describe what that is, like over, you know, over grazing in the same area or something to the extent that now the um, the depletion is causing, uh, you know, greenhouse emissions and so forth versus if you simply allow the land to recover now we're talking about uh, and how the animals are sequ- actually sequestering carbon, improving the condition of the planet because of how they uh, treat the land. Uh, so maybe let's hit that uh, distinctive uh, compare contrast there a little more w- versus what's happening in the feedlot where it's you drive by on the highway and it's dusty and there's um, you know there, there's no grass to speak of and so forth. Right. Yeah. So. So the I've heard the argument kind of floated out there that we have too many cows, that the cows are, you know, they're farting and that their methane is putting a hole in the ozone or whatever the particular science is. And I don't doubt that science particularly, but I don't think it's put in the context that those feedlot cows are fed a diet that they're not used to. So to some degree, imagine eating a whole bunch of frijoles for dinner, right? I mean, you're, if you don't eat frijoles, you don't have gas. It's kind of the same so thing. That, um, that methane emission is a consequence of their processed food diet as opposed to their natural diet. 
in large part. Yeah, I wow. Yeah, exactly. And another way of kind of on a high level, kind of trying to tell out, figure out the truth of that matter is that there used to be like three or four times more American bison in the Midwest now or back in the day than there are cattle in the entire U.S. now. So basically we have reduced the the number of large ruminants, either buffalo or, or cattle, whatever it is, way lower than historically we've had out here. So if you think back to the past, that there were way more bison than we have cattle now, and their ruminant, their system is the exact same as a cow. And if there was way more of them back then, and we didn't have methane issues, why are we having methane issues now with less cows around? So, um, you know, if just if we if if you readjust the farm bill to maybe not prop up the corn industry so much. And if all a lot of those corn farms back in the Midwest got converted back into perennial pastures, um, you could grow the same number of beef that we're doing now and never have to put them into a feedlot. And while you're doing that, you're going to be sequestering carbon. You're going to be increasing natural diversity. You're going to be on and on and on. All these amazing um, knock-on beneficial benefits. <laughs> beneficial benefits yeah Excellent. are there any other missing pieces to this puzzle is it that simple and and then why aren't we doing it if it's um cost effective and environmentally effective is it because of the corn subsidies or is it also maybe a little more expensive or something that's it takes a little bit well i'm not not to say that raising a cow in a feedlot doesn't take skill but definitely takes more skill to raise animals on range. Like you're paying attention to there's there's artistry involved. Like you really have to get a sense of your land and like, you know, you can see things directly, but then you have to have an association with that piece of land for a while to kind of feel what's going to happen. It's a little mystical woo woo, but you really eventually you spend enough time in a place that you can just kind of sense where things are going with that. And so there's a little bit of artistry involved in um, raising great grass-fed beef, um, and that the 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 current it to some degree it's like the military-industrial complex that there is so much money tied up in the way beef is and kind of all meat agriculture is being produced right now that I, it's kind of tough to unwind it. Right, you can't really just wave a wand, and so. One of the things that I like to say is that, you know, we we can't see if every we can't change everything at once. Let's just start by doing the simple thing and that we all eat, you know, once, twice, three, four times a day. So if we just start eating things differently, the industry is actually really sensitive to these things. Like they they want your money, right? And if you're signaling with your dollars that I believe in grass fed beef or I believe in pasture raised chicken or I believe in organic pork. Like the industry is gonna be like, oh, we need to get ahead of this trend. We need to, we need to keep getting their money. And so, and, and we see it, you know, it's, it would be tough to give examples that everyone would know, but these big companies are absolutely trying to get in front of these trends. And to some degree, they will be watered down and, you know, greenwashed. But mm. I mean, even bad organic 
whatever is better than not organic, right? We've made a step in the right direction. So let's not worry about being perfect from the get-go. Let's just be directionally correct, right? Let's just get a little bit more better meat on my plate. Let's have an organic hamburger every now and then. Let's have an aggressive beef hamburger hamburger every now and then. Let's uh, let's have a, a Sunday roast chicken that was organically raised on pasture. You know, let's just, let's vote with our dollars indicate the change that we want and just amazing things will happen farms like us will pop up all over the place and they just need a little bit of 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 support to get there yeah i love it it does make a big difference and then you can have that individual contribution it's kind of like casting your vote we have an election coming up and there's people that have the mentality well my vote's not going to make a difference this is a huge you know and then we see these examples in the elections where uh, the, the Senate race in uh, uh, Georgia was, you know, down to 87 votes in the entire state and crazy stats like that. Uh, but we, when we are voting with our pocketbook, we've seen how these branches of the uh, economy have grown tremendously in a short time because people put out a good product there and, um, you know, the consumers call for it. Now, um, the grass-fed beef, I suppose, is always going to be higher price than the beef we're used to buying these days because of that artificial um, savings uh, of the cow consuming a lot of corn, which is cheap. The corn feeds cheaper than it should be even. Uh, But I guess if you're arguing that we have the potential to do this at scale, we have a big enough continent, I guess, where there's enough room for the the cows to graze. Um, could that normalize uh, when the efficiencies kick into gear and the cows are eating grass, which is possibly even cheaper than corn in the in the bag? Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, there, yes, the answer is yes. I mean, people are all like, "Oh, organic can't feed the world. Regenerative can't feed the world." And it's it's it can, it can. That there's there's so many examples out there of regenerative farmers who are just crushing what conventional farmers can do. There's a guy named. Gabe Brown. So if any of you guys are listening and want to really get pepped up and feel positive about the future, check out Gabe Brown. Um, he's out of South Dakota, I believe. And he is an amazing um, proponent, uh, spokesperson for the regenerative agricultural movement. And they are way more articulate than I could be about the numbers and, and the dollars and cents of how regenerative can feed the world and bring the price down. I mean, if you can produce more calories per acre, you know, that's, that's the whole deal. It's like, Hey, this, that's cheaper for me. <laughs> I need to farm less acres. And so, I mean, that's one aspect that we haven't talked about too much is that regenerative agriculture to some degree requires more labor. And you would think that that's a problem, but the reality is, is that's actually a, that's a feature. That's a benefit because our rural communities are are fading. You know, there's, I don't know if you see them, but you, you know, you see these sad stories of Midwest towns that are down to like 500 people and that, you know, the school had to close down, the post office had to close down, that, you know, they just don't need the number of people to farm anymore and that there is a whole very important culture that is kind of fading away right now that the average age of the farmer it's like 65, 67, something like that. And, you That's know. That's the average age of farmer. 
And in other words, the younger generation is not stepping up. They're heading to the uh, the big city. Yep. Yep. So for two reasons. One, oh well, basically it's money. That dad can't make enough money on the farm to support more than one family. So there's no no income for the, 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 the younger generation to move into. And the other thing is that the dad is so poor and broke and stressed that the kids are like, I don't want to do that. You know, and then the, you know, so there's, there's a whole bunch of disincentives right now for the right younger generation to get in, which isn't to say that they aren't doing that. There are definitely younger farmers coming in and that the many of, and as far as like hopefulness, there are actually a large growing segment of Midwest farmers who are getting into these rotator practices. They're dipping their toe in it. They're not going a whole hog, but um, you know, no-till cropping is really becoming really popular, which is uh, keeping a lot of carbon in the soil as far as farming techniques go. Um, cover cropping's an up-and-coming thing, which is a real details. I would get really excited about this, but I'm not really a farmer. You need to talk to a real farmer about this sort of stuff. But the idea is that all the plants need nitrogen to grow, right? And so they're always spraying on nitrogen. But the reality is, is that we have as much nitrogen in the air as a plant would ever need. You just need to grow the right plant who will capture the nitrogen and put it in the ground, which generally speaking is not a food plant. You know, it's not something humans are going to directly consume, generally speaking. So a cover crop idea is basically you grow a nitrogen fixing plant first, and then you grow your corn crop or whatever. This is not quite right, but the idea is correct. Grow fixing cover crop, grow your, your cash crop, and then you grow another nitrogen fixing crop. And so rather than having to spray nitrogen that comes out of a petrochemical in industry, you just pull it out of the air with your plants. Like that's pretty cool. Pretty simple. You know, simple, maybe not easy, but you know, conceptually you're like, oh, it's all it's all here. Mother Nature didn't need, you know, artificial fertilizers they didn't mother nature didn't need herbicides and pesticides and all that sort of stuff you just have to kind of move the pieces around the playing board long enough until you are farming or ranching in mother nature's image that the thing about mother nature she's got it all figured out but she's a passive manager she's just like set it and forget it like hey i'm done i'm going off to do my thing there's always internal built-in checks and balances now, if you can see what her system is and you can not mess it up as active human managers, as stewards of our land, we can take these processes and be like, oh, Mother Nature, I see what you're doing there. You don't want these cows to come back here until that grass is regrown, mm. but you can't come back on exactly the right day because you don't have active management. You kind of leave it up to chance a little bit when these cows come back. Well, I am an active farmer. I'm an active rancher. I am farming based on your principles and I have an electric fence and a cow dog and I can come back like today because that grass is perfect for grazing. So you can take her things that would take her a hundred years to grow an inch of topsoil. You can do that in like a decade with active human management. You're just taking the same principles of mother nature and just adding human creativity, human effort, human attention to it. And that you really get back into that stewardship mentality school of thought where we are actively kind of just moving mother's nature's program forward rather than kind of letting her doing it you know passively 
or getting in there and just taking a plow to it and just rip it, literally ripping it all up. I mean, that works for a while too, but we've got, mm. what, I've been doing it for about 50, 60 years. So we got about another 20 or 30 left. So we're going to have to change sooner or later. Oh, yes. Uh, tell me more about that statement that we hear bantered about now and then that we're 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 um we're we're on a we're on a time clock now because of our abuse of the land. Right. So I can't oh I should have I should have looked up the reference before I made made the half reference, but there is there is a what is it, forty harvests, I think. Yeah. There some smart people have come up with a with a with a math showing that, you know, in conventional production practices X amount of carbon goes into the air. X amount of soil goes down the Mississippi into the into the Gulf of Mexico, and they've calculated out that we have about 40, 40 harvests left before things get really bad. And uh, really bad means um, inability to to have a harvest. Like the crops aren't going to grow because the soil's so depleted and the the atmospheres, all those changes due to mechanized farming is what you're talking about. Yeah, so yeah. We have, we have forty left until then. We're then we're um, in. I don't know if you saw the movie *Idiocracy*, where none of the crops were growing because they were not using water. They're using an energy drink that had, um, you know, taken over the, <laughs> the the industry, and everyone was drinking it instead of water. And then they were watering the crops and so forth. But um, we're looking at a real life idiocracy uh, situation with forty more harvests. Yep, yep. And I mean, I I may ha- not have the number correct, but the principle is sound that. The end is closer than you would think. And that if you're, but I mean, that sounds pessimistic, but I am not pessimistic about this. I am optimistic. It's part of the reason why I've decided to get out here on podcasts and like tell people that, like I said a little bit earlier, you and you kind of reflected back that we get to vote with our forks. We get to choose our future that, yeah, buy organic when you can buy local when you can. It's not perfect. You're not going to be able to do everything that way, but every little bit you do counts. And that the more people we get doing that, the more it counts. And that, you know, there are some, and so it's just so cool, man. You know, you get better food for your body. You get to grow strong, happy, healthy kids. You get strong, healthy body. You're going to be around for your kids and your grandkids. You know that the the food that you're eating was grown really well, so it's either a healthy plant in soil or it's a healthy, happy animal on on good plants. And those good plants are taking care of the environment. The environment means that it's sequestering carbon, so these crazy weather cycles are moderating. Mm. It's just, it's so cool. And then there's, you know, scientific studies out there quantifying how fast these things can regenerate. And it, it just really comes down to getting people to buy the products to support what to support the future that they want and it doesn't have to be like this burdensome like i have to go 100 percent organic but i can't i can't shop at whole foods i have a real job and it's like well no you can't and then no one really expects you to just do the best you can that the the aggregation of every little thing you do has a dramatic impact like we you know, our ranch like we exist because there's only maybe Nah, pick a number. A thousand to two thousand people support the what we do, and mm-hmm. we've stood up our whole ranch on a thousand to two thousand people buying our chicken. Right? It's it doesn't take a whole lot. So if you're you know go find a farmer, support it as best you can. 
And then, you know, if that farmer maxes out production, like some other farmer, I mean, farmers, we want to make money too. Like they're like, oh, hey, I see someone's making a lot of money with this chicken thing. Like I'm going to go raise some of my own chicken. Uh, and boom, now you have two farmers raising chicken. And if they're raising chickens on pasture, they're fertilizing things and they're moving chicken and you know, all sorts of good stuff. And it just comes down to your food choices and your food choices have like a triple benefit to you. They're good for you. They're good for the animal and they're good for the land. And they're good for the future. So that's a quadruple benefit. And that's kind of that's kind of the simplistic message that I think gives me a lot of hope. It's just like, just buy some better food and it's going to take care of a lot of the problems that our society faces. I'm pleased to present B-Rad Grass-Fed Whey Protein Isolate Superfuel, the absolute highest quality, all-natural protein supplement infused with creatine that delivers everything you need to optimize your appetite for fat loss, recover quickly from workouts, and build and maintain lean muscle mass, the single most important attribute for aging gracefully. Our protein comes directly from small family farms in America's dairy land of Wisconsin. It's cold processed and micro filtered for maximum bioavailability and digestibility. So please, don't mess with the many cheap commodity protein supplements that are ineffective, inferior, less pure, and often contain junk sweeteners, especially the plant-based offerings that are vastly less bioavailable than the gold standard of protein supplements that's whey protein isolate. Whether you're in your peak athletic years looking to grow and recover or in the older age groups trying to delay aging and decline, whey and creatine are widely agreed to be the most critical and effective supplements to take for the rest of your life. You can easily stir the superfuel in water or make a delicious smoothie every day. I'm certain that you're going to love the pleasant, light, natural vanilla bean and cocoa bean flavors. So try some on Amazon today. It's a huge hit with dozens of five-star reviews. Or you can order direct from bradnutrition.com with our buy three, get one free, and make the super fuel a centerpiece of your daily routine. Yeah, including the momentum against it right now is there because people are supporting uh, these, these planet-unfriendly, mechanized food, industrialized practices. Um, and sounds like uh, we've done away with, uh, for example, human labor in favor of, uh, you know, machines and strategies, subsidies, things like that, that are getting us away from the tremendous potential that we have that you've just described for this um, regenerative, organic farming practices. And um, uh, it's it's distressing to realize that the, the chemical makers, for example, are putting their muscle in so that um, the, the, the ranchers will, you know, will spray things instead of, uh, you know, rotate the crops. Uh, but again, if the if the money's leading elsewhere, um, people are going to shift gears quickly. Companies are going to shift gears, and and um, that 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 gives us hope. It really does. Yeah, I love how you I love how you say that. And I'm wondering, back in the '80s, when your farm decided to make that um, uh, experimental switch, were you taking a big risk? Did you um, did you see that, or did Dad see that as um, something that was you know? wild and crazy and wacky to try something that might not pay off and might put the farm in peril because it wasn't proven. Um, yeah, it was definitely, it was definitely a, a risk for sure. Um, 
I mean, we we were pretty confident that it was going to work. That the, I mean, I I don't know how clearly I've been conveying it to you, the listener, but that the logic of how what Alan Savory talks about this whole regenerative movement and how just our own innate knowledge of how nature works it's just like oh this is pretty much the same thing like how could this not work i mean so short-term uncertainty yes long-term confidence absolutely like we knew it was gonna work it was just kind of like eh, do we you know do we put the fence in the right spot did we put the water trough in the white spot like do we have the right genetics for these cows you know you know there there's the little you know, ring, iron, you know, wrinkles to iron out, but that the confidence was there. And, you know, we've seen it like, so the saying around here, so we're on Red Bank Creek, it's right here outside the window. And the saying around here is uh, dry by the 4th of July, that the creeks are dry by the 4th of July. Um, we are on a, what they would technically classify as a seasonal creek. Um, and that through our grazing practices in the 80s and 90s, we actually were able to get our creek to run year-round. And so remember how I was talking about how these roots open up the soil, infiltrate water? Well, to some degree, to a big degree, the rangeland acts like a sponge. It is a sponge for rainfall. And that if you have more roots, you infiltrate more water, you just hold on to that water and that imagine, you know, you take your, your, your sink sponge and you kind of like put a little crease into it and you'll see that water kind of just seeps down, seeps down, then seeps out. And that, that bottom crease in the, your sponge, that's the creek. So one very simplistic, but quick way of assessing rangeland health as you're out there in the world is look at your riparian zone. That's the, the ecosystem that lives up and down creek beds. And if you're seeing lots of cotton well around here cottonwoods and the willows and you're seeing you know eddies and oxbow bends and and you know right along the creek and then you've got your you know grapevines and hopefully not blackberries but they're you know blackberries are invasive really good uh-huh. for pie but not great for the environment necessarily but if you're seeing them that's better than nothing right that's the cool thing is you want something is better than nothing you can always move to the next level as long as you have that momentum uh-huh. anyways if you can check out your creeks, that gives you a sense of what the rangeland is like. So if you don't see any riparian jungle, as we like to call it, and all you see are like cut banks and gravel, like you probably have a poor water cycle. You probably can assume with relative accuracy that that rangeland is not going to have a lot of native perennials. It will not have a lot of roots opening up its this structure. And um, yeah, so before buying a farm, Check that creek out at the banks and look for some signs of uh, disparate life. I want to talk about right. the labeling and as we stroll into the, uh, the the farmer's market or the supermarket, how we can navigate some of this terminology, the promises behind it and the confusing and um, what do you call it? Greenwashing? Is that um, greenwashing? Yep. What does that mean? Uh, greenwashing is where you uh, don't change your practices and you put a groovy mm-hmm. label on it uh, and uh, boom, you're redeemed. Yeah, let's greenwash this product here and charge a yep. little more. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yep. Yep. So, so, yeah, talk about like the gold standard and we have different terms depending on the animal and then uh, what some of the stuff we see on the label. Right. So gold standard... Um, you're, 
Yeah. See, it's even tough to really say because these labels have all, once you have a third-party certification, that almost instantly means that there's loopholes. So organic has some loopholes that you can actually spray some chemicals if you're an organic farmer on your crops. Yeah. So the gold standard really is to do the best you can possibly do, right? So that would be organic is better than not organic. Uh, locally grown is better than, you know, grown in Mexico. You know, so you take the steps as far up as you can go. So the gold standard really would be to know your farmer and believe what they're doing, which is not always possible, but that would be the gold standard. Like go out to the farm and be like, oh, this guy, I don't see any Roundup bottles here. This guy's good to go. Um, so, so in grass and in, in beef, grass fed is probably, it would be the standard, uh, American grass fed association certified AGA. They're the ones that hold the, the, the highest standard in my opinion for, for beef. They also certify lamb and goat as well as I believe, um, animal werewolf, animal, what is their certification? Animal welfare approved AWA is also another gold standard. You're not going to find that at grocery stores though, because that is a super high standard that covers animal welfare, farm labor, uh, genetics. It's really, really high quality stuff, but it's, it's really expensive. It will never, you'll never be able to find it in a grocery store, but they have a great website for, uh, with a farm finder. So uh. animal welfare approved, go to their website, uh. you'll find a farm nearby. Uh, another place to find grass-fed beef anyways would be go to eatwild.com. There, she's got a, Joe Robinson wrote, almost almost literally wrote the book about grass-fed beef industry that started it back in the early 2000s. And she still has a great directory on her website about all the grass-fed beef producers in the U.S. We're on there, Big Bluff Ranch. <laughs> and you're talking um, about 100% grass-fed, grass-finished. Oh, yeah all that because the term grass fed can be applied to an oh, right. yeah. so partially grass fed, right? You're right, right. So you're right. You called me out. You're hundred percent right. So this is green greenwashing in action. So technically the way the USDA has standards that all cows can be called grass fed because all calves are born out on the range. I mean very small this vanishingly small number of them were ever born in a feedlot. They're all born out on grass. They've all lived their first six, nine months on grass. And so under that definition, they all can be called grass-fed. So there is a category out there called grass-fed, grain-finished. And you're like, oh, green, grass-fed, grain-finished is good stuff. But it's it's exactly what your commercial grocery store beef is. Like, it's it's no different at all. So, yes, you're absolutely right. I I get hooked into, in my mind, I know that grass, in my mind, when I say grass-fed, I mean grass-fed, grass-finished certified so you're absolutely right see even i i just fell for it you want grass-fed grass finished that that is the gold standard uh for sure preferably grown you know in the locally in your state if not locally in the u.s but uh australia and new zealand do a great job their their industries down there are really high quality it just it's a little silly to ship meat from australia to the u.s but other than that they do good the meat itself is good you know, the, the food miles, eh, maybe not so good, but the product itself is good. Um, so yeah, so greenwashing is a tough thing. I mean, you, you have to educate yourself a little bit. Like when you hear about free range, uh, free range chicken. So, you know, that's 
we do pasture raise. That means our chickens are out on pasture from day one. They're out on, on the grass, chasing bugs, sitting in the sun, having fun. Now, you when you first hear free, free range, you're like, oh, well, that must be like what Tyler does. They must be out on the range running around because they're free ranging, right? Well, the industry has got in there and they they kind of have owned that term. So uh, in a in a in a conventional house, chickens are raised to harvest weight in about eh, five six weeks somewhere in that range, and that the industry says, well, for biosecurity, we don't allow them outside access until week I don't know four something like that. What does biosecurity mean? Well, the, the biosecurity is like, well, I don't want a wild Tweety bird to fly into my house and bring a coffin. Uh. Um, you know, that's that's the biosecurity excuse. But, and it's true. I mean, when you over, you know, if you pack in lots of animals in a small space and they don't have their natural ability to regulate spacing and density and to get away from disease or, or, or any of that sort of stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's like, it's like sending your kids off to school, right? It's a Petri dish, right? They go off to school, they get packed in with all those germs, they bring bring the bugs home, and next thing you know, you're sick. Kind of the same idea that the 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 conventional houses are just breeding potential breeding grounds for disease. And so they really do have to be careful about letting stuff in because it's an absolute issue where you get one chicken sick in a house full of chickens, and then next thing you know, that entire house has got the same disease. It doesn't there's no little illness in a chicken. It's either all or nothing. So, so free range anyways, that they have these, these parameters such that, um, they don't get let out very early in their, in their life. And when they do get opened, let out, all that's really happening is doors are opening on the side of the barn and they're let out into a little, it's almost like a, well, different farms do it different ways. Cause you know, it's a little, it's a little (laughs) yard. It's a little yard and it doesn't even have to have grass on it. It just has to be outside. And chickens are immensely creatures of habits. Like they do the same thing every single day. And so if you open up a door, they're like, I don't do that thing. And so, you know, you have say 40,000 chickens in a barn. You go out there in the middle of the day and you'll see like 10 outside, 20, 100. I mean, a vanishingly small fraction. These free range is not what you think it is um kind of the same thing with the vegetarian fed eggs chickens are not vegetarians they are carnivorous little baby dinosaurs that love to kill and eat things uh feeding chickens only vegetables is really going against what they actually want to eat they want to eat they want to eat things so that to me is really just outrageous. Like they're making a virtue out of a, out of something that's bad. I mean, you can't really, the, the, the diet that the conventional houses have to use, it's tough to incorporate meat byproducts because of rancidity and, uh, and, and, and so they really have to kind of feed them a vegetarian diet, but to, to not brag that. about it. <laughs> exactly. To like, oh, Hey, I can't actually feed the chickens what they're supposed to eat, but Hey, I'm going to make it sound like I'm doing an amazing thing and they're vegetarian fed. So all eggs are basically vegetarian fed if you're buying them at the grocery store. And that pretty much means that all eggs are coming from hens that are not eating a complete diet that they're kind of would naturally prefer to eat. Um, yeah, they love bugs and, you know, they'll go after mice and you, mm-hmm. they'll kill small snakes. I mean, you have some, we have, we keep some hens around the yard and it's like, yeah, it's, they they want meat. They're they're happy to be carnivorous. 
they're not predators, but they certainly will like to amend their diet with, with high protein. It's just like humans, right? We should eat mostly plants, eat some meat. And if you're going to eat meat, eat really good meat. So pasture raised chicken, that distinctive term means that they, they live mostly outdoors or is there some nuance there and then describe their, their overall diet that they're eating, um, bugs, worms, things that they can easily catch, and then they might get the odd mouse or snake. I didn't realize that with the chicken. Well, that, that's more on the layer side, but yeah, the layers are are, are way more vigorous. Um, yeah. So pasture-raised is not a regulated term. So that means anyone can use that for what they want to. And only... And for the most part, it really hasn't been watered down. There's a couple of companies out there who are kind of getting into the space and using it when I don't think they should. But generally speaking, if you're going to talk to a farmer, a person who's actually raising the birds, not like some corporate wholesale type dude, and they say pasture raised, like that's legit. Because that means that this person is saying, I want my birds on pasture. I want them on fresh pasture. I want the movie to fresh pasture. That means I'm, that person's worried about the grass, the recovery, the, 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 the quality of the, the pasture that the birds are on. And so that is, that's a, that's, that's a good term. As long as you're not buying, generally speaking, you're not buying pasture raised in the grocery store. If you're buying it from a farmer, uh, yeah, that, that would be a gold standard for sure. And as far as, um, what these pasture raised chickens eat that, even though I just gave a long story about how chickens are carnivorous and they do love to eat meat, they are not predators are not carnivores they're not hawks or anything like that they actually do get the bulk of their nutrition needs to come from from grains they're designed to eat grains they have something called a crop and a gizzard so a crop is like this big kind of weird bulge in their throat where they stuff a whole bunch of grain into like imagine if you're a quail out here in california they go off they they're running around and they steal their crop full of of seeds that they spent all day collecting and then they kind of somehow swallow it down into their gizzard, which is this big ball of muscle. Like imagine a stomach that has this all muscle and they've got some rocks in there and they just sit here and they grind with their gizzard with these rocks and the seeds and they crack them down and they eat them. They're designed to eat grain. So <clears throat> back to the cow discussion, cows are ruminants. They have four stomachs. They're designed to eat grass and they're not designed to eat grain back to chickens, they have one stomach and they've got this gizzard. They are designed to eat grain. So chickens, they're meant to eat grain. It's okay for them to have grain. That's, that's their natural diet. And so, yeah, when, when we have them out on pasture, they get a lot of grass, they get a lot of like whatever bugs they can find, but we also supplement with a lot of grain, grain feed. So, and that's going to be true across the board of any pasture raised chicken that you know, when you hear pasture raised, a lot of people ask like, oh, so you don't feed them any grain? You're like, well, no, no, they're designed to eat grain. They need to eat grain. Mm -hmm. But we give them fresh pasture. Think of it like a salad on steroids, right? You know, they absolutely need that, but they can't live on it. So I guess the chickens, a, a domesticated animal that needs human intervention in the diet, essentially, it's not a, it's not, there's not like wild chickens running around surviving on, um, uh, grass and worms. And exactly. Mice. So, huh, another little soapbox here. So chickens, um, 
chickens uh they came from indonesia and they they existed you know in 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 jungles and then somehow they spread across the world and that they still like that they still like living in their their initial genetic instincts is to live in small groups kind of under trees like zipping out grabbing something zipping back into cover and that's how uh chickens were raised until you know maybe the early 40s i think it was 50s and what has oh no i lost my train of thought ah. um, chickens came from indonesia there and then we domesticated them and Right. We domesticated them. And so, oh, right. So the whole point is that chickens, okay, got it. Now I'm going. You just said that chickens, um, chickens need outside intervention. They need human intervention. That's absolutely true. That the way we as a culture have decided to eat chicken is not a, in balance with how nature would produce chicken on its own. So we have as a culture decided, Hey, we like kitchen. We like chicken a lot. We like chicken above and beyond the actual carrying capacity of the landscape. So depending on where you are, you know, like how much quail do you have running around? How many turkeys do you have running around? Like per acre, you're not going to have very many. You're going to have, I don't know, two, pick a number. It's a small number. And, but as society, we've said that, no, we like chicken a lot. And so we are working above and beyond within reason, the capacity of the land that we're putting on more animals in that one spot. This is part of where the active human management uh, equation steps steps in. We're like, Mother Nature would only probably raise 100 chickens here on this acre. But we're a human. We understand why she said 100 chickens only. And we can now kind of work with that system. Like, oh, only 100 chickens because we didn't grow enough grain for them. Well, we can bring the grain in. Only 100 chickens in this acre because they'd overpolluted if they stayed here long. Well, that's fine. We'll move them to the next acre. So we can kind of take Mother Nature's system and kind of bump it up, which is what we as a culture have kind of decided. And so if you think about what I was talking about with the beef, where we're basically, you got for grass of beef, you got cow, you got sun, and you got grass. Those are the only real, and human intelligence. Those are the only real ingredients. And those are all essentially free once you buy the ground. Whereas with chickens, you have those exact same ingredients plus corn or grain. I should say grain. We, we do no corn, no soy. So grain. So all of a sudden you have added an extra layer of expense in this production. So you should actually spend more. Chicken should be more expensive That's than beef in the long run. Grass-fed chicken should be, or, or <laughs> grass-fed beef is basically nature. Pasture-raised chicken requires human intervention. Huh. And so there is a, uh, Part of the reason that we think chicken is so cheap is that there was a uh, there was a presidential uh, campaign back in the fifties, and his tagline was uh, "a chicken in every pot." And so, back in those days, when chickens were still raised on a more natural scale, when you, when you wanted a chicken dinner, it was kind of a big deal. Sunday being like the, the, the fancy meal of the week, right? You're going to sit down, you're going to spend some time making your Sunday roast chicken. It was not a throwaway meal. It was like the main meal of the week. And so grandma would go out and whack one of her chickens and pluck it and cook it off. And that was a big deal because before 
we came up with this excess pile of corn, chickens had to survive on what was around the farmyard. Perhaps grandma would throw out the backyard, the, the seeds and the bugs that the hens could find. And so that gets back to the mother nature idea of, like I said, 100, 100, 100 animals per acre, right? That was a natural balance. That was only 100 chickens per acre. That was not enough for grandma to, to graze 5,000 chickens to sell to her neighbors. That was like enough for one chicken every week. And even that was probably a lot. And so that is why chickens are should be more expensive is because we have exceeded the natural capacity in a very intelligent way. Whereas grass-fed beef should be a lot cheaper because we're just using Mother Nature's stuff. So the meat case, the prices you pay in your grocery store, the meat you see displayed in the grocery store is not really reflective of how we should be eating off of our environment. Like in California, we should be eating a lot of goat, a lot of lamb because we are a Mediterranean climate. That's how we grow forage around here. We should be eating some beef because we do have some decent pastures down around the valleys, down, down, down by the rivers. We should be eating less pork and we should be eating, you know, very little chicken, right? Because that's what mother nature grows. And that's to some degree, that is to a lot of degree, that is what I am trying to do here on the ranch is to create a meat offering that, um, that is California appropriate Uh, and even more specifically Northern California and the Sacramento Valley appropriate because Southern California is a whole different beast down there. I don't even know what they should eat, but it still be a lot of lamb and goat, but, um, that, and that, that gets back to the idea of understanding mother nature understanding her process in our local environment and then taking our human um, intelligence and stepping into that process and thoughtfully and correctly tweaking with it, making it making it work for what we as a society want. So uh, what about the commentary that the 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 ruminant animal, the, the cow and the others uh, fare better on this adverse dietary practice of the uh, of the grain feed? versus the chicken or the pig is that you mentioned that you don't do soy or corn is that the stuff that really um, the monogastric animals the 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 chicken and the pig have trouble digesting and then as the story goes that i'm familiar with they're giving off an end product that has uh, high polyunsaturated content in their flesh versus the uh the cow the 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 multi-chambered stomach is able to kind of uh, deliver a favorable end product because they can better handle um, this stuff that's not supposed to be in their diet. So you're feeding corn to all of those animals and you're saying that the cow produces the better, worst option? Yeah, that's the commentary that's it's going around. Dr. Paul Saldino talks about this at length and some other people have said, um, you know, obviously trying to get a pasture raised uh, or free range, 100% grass fed is going to be the best. But then if you are compelled to choose a conventionally raised animal, the monogastric animals are going to fare worse than the, than the ruminant animals in processing that, that feed from their diet. Um, He's thinking people, he's thinking. Yeah. So the way I answer these questions in my mind is I go back and I try and compare what the animals should eat to what they are eating. And at no point 
in my understanding, would a cow ever eat a lot of grain? In my understanding of chickens, I know that, you know, chickens say they're like a pheasant or a quail. Those animals do eat a lot of grain. When you say grain, so, is there a distinction between... Well, like seed heads. Like they're going out there in the native grasses and they're they're pulling off and eating, they're, they're eating the soft chest. They're eating the, the purple needle grass seeds. You know, they're eating seeds off of the grasses that grow here naturally. So that would be a grain. That would be my equivalent. So there's, you know, grains that... Grains, the seeds that the native range produces. And there would be the the grains that humans are growing, like the, the corn and the the wheat and the barley and all that sort of stuff. And so I would think, and I don't know the science on this, but I would think that chickens are to some degree meant to eat corn um, or eat grains anyways. Corn, yeah, I mean, the, I have heard people say that corn and soy is not the appropriate diet for chickens, but I also know that when we used to feed corn and soy to our chickens is kind of the base of our, our feed that they did great, you know, that they're, that's a tough question. I don't, I don't have an answer for you as, as a farmer, as what I am trying to do, I would say that the reasons we choose the way we feed our animals is that that is the most species appropriate that we can get to. And I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure I'm right. And so we stay away from corn and soy, not because I think it's bad for the animals, although that may be true, but the reason I stay away from corn and soy is that I think it is more an appropriate way of feeding our animals for the California environment. I keep harping on this because I think it's important that California is a Mediterranean climate and we grow good winter crops. Right now we're using wheat as our part of our ration and wheat grow. California used to be a major producer in the world of wheat back in the, well, before the California, the, the Valley, the California water project. So in the in the 30s and 40s and 20s. I don't know if you've seen these old-timey uh, farm pictures. Like, they'll have, like, a hundred mules set up, and they'll be harvesting thousands of acres of grain in, like, this old mule-drawn combine. Oh, it's really cool pictures if you ever find them. But California grew tons of wheat. It's something that our climate does really well. And so if I am, and since we are trying to create a, I don't know, I haven't, a meat case, call it a meat case, a California meat appropriate meat case when you walk into a grocery store you see the meat there what is what should california be producing and putting into that meat case and so that's why i said you know some beef a lot of goat and lamb some chicken and if of that chicken that chicken should be eating something that can be grown here in california uh-huh. in this case wheat would be as a, a really good option we're not talking about having to irrigate in the summer with corn uh, we're not worried about all the weird, and I don't want to get too much into the political aspects of like the GMO and the, and the this and the that, but I mean, that's there too. But basically wheat is what we could grow here. So why not? And chickens do really well on wheat. So why not just feed them wheat? And then you have all these cool knock on effects of like human health and animal health and, and all this other sort of stuff. But it all kind of stems from trying to be as ecologically appropriate as possible. Hmm. So that's a pretty nice uh, way to sum up what I feel is a nice, uh, quick overview of many aspects of farming and uh, the great stuff you're doing there. So I really appreciate you taking the time, Tyler. This was fun. Um, tell us how we can connect further 
with what's going on at Big Bluff Ranch. We can order directly and and try some of this chicken for ourselves and be the be the ultimate judges of the superiority of a, a animal raised in a healthy manner for for itself and the environment. Uh, how do we connect with you? Right. So um, we will obviously go to BigBluffRanch.com. And if you if you like uh, gambling a little bit, go to bigbluffranch.com slash giveaway, and we do monthly giveaways. So go ahead, go to the giveaway page, sign up. You'll uh, get on our email newsletter. You're going to learn even more of this stuff that I love to talk about. Um, if you're here local to California, we're, we're not too far a drive away. We actually have a little cabin here at the lake that people can come visit. So, yeah, just bigwellfranch.com slash giveaway and uh, get on the email list and come visit sometime. Rancher Tyler Dolly spending time with us. Thank you, everybody. Thanks, Tyler. Thanks for listening. I want to discuss the incredible benefits of red light therapy and how you can get started with Mito Red Light. Mito, like mitochondria, red light makes the premier light therapy devices in the world and at incredibly affordable prices. I stand in front of my Mito Pro 1500 unit every morning, carefully exposing my eyeballs, other important balls, and my entire body to special wavelengths of red and near for red light. When I tell people about my daily devotion to red light therapy, they typically ask, does this stuff really work? And the answer is yes. And there are thousands of studies supporting its effectiveness. Here's how. It's called photobiomodulation where specific wavelengths of red and near-infrared light, red's visible, near-infrared is not visible, that's why it looks like only half of your panel's working, these wavelengths help mitochondria in cells throughout your body produce more energy and clear waste products more efficiently. Red light exposure helps mobilize nitric oxide trapped in the mitochondria and allows oxygen to return to the cell and increase ATP production. The benefits are proven again and again for skin health, muscle recovery, joint pain, and numerous inflammatory conditions. Red light therapy is also beneficial for circadian rhythm alignment because we generally get far too little direct sunlight and too much indoor blue light from screens and light bulbs at the wrong times. You don't hear much about this benefit of red light therapy, but when I turn on those lights, first thing in the morning. As soon as I wake up, I walk across the hall, I stand in front of the panels, and I feel instantly awake and energized. And believe me, there's a lot of days where Mr. Health Guy here wakes up feeling a little groggy and a little whiny, like I don't want to right get up now and get into my morning exercise routine. But when I stand in front of the lights, in one minute, I swear I feel wide awake. I get all that grogginess out naturally. It's super powerful, super effective, besides all the healing and the cellular benefits. I also love it for being a natural wake-up machine. You have to try red light therapy. I am certain that you will become a devoted user. And guess what? Mito Red Light offers a 60-day no-risk trial period and a special 5% discount for BRAD podcast listeners. Just visit mitoredlight, M-I-T-O, redlight.com, and use the code BRAD on any of their products. Go for it today and get started on your red light journey. 
Thank you so much for listening to the BRAD podcast. We appreciate all feedback and suggestions. Email podcast at bradventures.com and visit bradkearns.com to download five free ebooks and learn some great long cuts to a longer life, how to optimize testosterone naturally, become a dark chocolate connoisseur, and transition to a barefoot and minimalist shoe lifestyle.